I thought it would be good for us to stop and look at God's Word and, and understand a little bit more of how loving it is when we do church discipline. How loving it is to excommunicate someone. And how much love there is when that person repents and we embrace back and forgive. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We have many new members and many of you come from not very healthy churches where you have never heard or seen, seen church discipline, excommunication. So I'd like you to see with your eyes and hear with your ears how vital this subject is in the life of a local church. No, no, no wonder so many churches, they resemble more a club and the world than the assembly of God's holy people because there is no church discipline in so I want to invite you to stand up if you can. And let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this, this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers and the idolaters. Since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judged those outside. Therefore, purge the evil person from among you. You can be seated. Father, we rejoice in you. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for this wonderful time of worship so far and we know there is much more coming out of your heart and out of your hands give us 
the bread of life, your word. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to grasp the beauty of your wisdom. Help me to be faithful. Help this congregation to be faithful. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. In his book, J. Adams, in his book, Handbook of Church Discipline, he says, he opens the book with these examples. He says, Mary has left Bill and announces to him that she's going to divorce him. No grounds, nothing, just a sinful decision. Another one, after a loud and protracted argument, Sally and Jane have declared that they do not care to speak to each other again. Inside the church, it has been four weeks, four weeks since the, the fight, and they refuse to reconcile. Harry has discover, discovered that the church organist is a homosexual. And the church doesn't care about disciplining. Then he asks Jay Adams, what do all these people have in common? In one way or another, they all need the blessings and the benefits of church discipline. Blessings and benefits of church discipline. But if they belong to the average church, none, or at best few of them, would be able to profit from the healing, purifying balm of discipline. And discipline in such churches would not be considered a blessing or benefit, but an outmoded relic of the dark ages, unsuitable to a modern congregation. And then he says, that's the tragedy of our time. Church discipline, excommunication are topics and subjects completely rejected by so many today who profess to be Christians in so many places who call themselves house of worship and churches. For many who profess to be Christians, church discipline or excommunication is unloving, harsh. It's not like Christ. That's not Christ-like to do that. I have heard people saying, who are you to judge these people? I believe the, this mentality, when we are looking at church discipline and excommunication as harsh and loving, not like Christ. This mentality is the fruit of worldliness, carnality, embarrassment of the true gospel, lack of knowledge of the Bible, lack of understanding the seriousness of sin, profound ignorance about the beauty of the church, deep ignorance about the holiness of our triune God, and also rejection of church membership. Paul actually says, we just read, uh, he calls a church that does not practice church discipline or excommunicate a person who refuses to repent. He calls that church arrogant. That's an arrogant church. Why? Why would Paul call them arrogant? They know better than God. They think that they are more loving than God. I know better about love than God does. The soft and weak teaching so many circles have been producing people with hard hearts towards these scriptures. 
the soft and weak teachings in so many places that call themselves churches have been producing hearts that are hard towards the Scriptures and towards Christ. On the other hand, churches where the teaching is serious and profound, it promotes a heart that's soft towards Christ's words and Christ's people. It's fascinating that contrary to so many of the modern people and who call themselves Christians and churches, the Reformers during the Reformation, they declared that one of the signs of a true church was church discipline. It's not enough to preach the gospel. You can preach as much as you want, but if you're not applying the holiness of the gospel in the life of the church, that's not a true church. People have so elevated man and tolerance. It's all about being tolerant. That now they abhor, they hate God's holiness and wisdom. The lack of emphasis on church membership is another reason why there is so little of church discipline. How are you going to discipline somebody who does not belong to your church? How are you going to excommunicate someone who is not a member? That makes no sense. Sometimes people talk, uh, give biblical evidence that there is church membership. Well, first of all, there is a body, therefore you need members in a body. The church is a household, you, you must have members in a household. How are you going to ex excommunicate someone who doesn't belong to you? How are you going to officially, officially deliver someone to Satan if that person is not officially part of that congregation? So, I just want to divide in two parts today. We are going to see the precedence of church discipline and then the purposes of church discipline. The precedence of church discipline and then the purposes. Church discipline, excommunication, is very rare among so many churches. Would you agree with that? But it's fascinating that it's not that rare in the Bible. It's similar to predestination, election. You know, when you, when you see like, whoa, it's everywhere here. The same with church discipline, excommunication. Though it's rare to find churches exercising that, it's not rare in the Bible. And I would say that the first place where we see God ex excommunicating someone from His assembly is right in the Garden of Eden. Right in the Garden of Eden, He excommunicates Adam and Eve from His presence because of sin. He calls Israel, He forms Israel as a nation, and in His commands to Israel as a nation, under the Mosaic Covenant, you have laws and rules and regulations to excommunicate people from the assembly of God's people. Isn't that right? So many laws about excommunicating. And under the Mosaic law, the excommunication was often, how? Through death. Think about Israel, and the story of the nation of Israel ends with Israel being exiled, excommunicated from God's presence. They're out of the land where God was dwelling. 
Israel is excommunicated. There's a fascinating, a beautiful parallel. You think about right, right when the nation of Israel is beginning the conquest under the old covenant. In Joshua chapter 7, God comes and excommunicates a whole family, Achan and his family. Joshua chapter 7. Right in the beginning of the conquest under the old covenant. You move to the new covenant. Oh, the God of the new covenant will never do that. And you come to the beginning of the conquest under the new covenant. And God excommunicates a family from his church. Ananias and Sapphira. God himself excommunicates them from the assembly. The Lord himself executes church discipline, excommunication, and then he commands the church to do it. All throughout the New Testament we see church discipline. Calling the church to excommunicate someone who is unwilling to repent. So Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to, li- if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three who, we- who are coming to Rebuke him. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, let him be to you as a Gentile, a pagan, and a tax collector. Meaning, one outside the covenant community. Romans 16. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And that's inside the church. And what does Paul command the church? Avoid them. Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan. In verse 11 of chapter 5, but now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13 through 15, Paul says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed Oh, what? Bring shame to a person? That's exactly what the Lord says. In the hope that he will be ashamed and repent of his sins. Second Thessalonians 3.6 Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking idleness. And not in accord with the tradition they have received from us. 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 through 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So that the rest may stand in fear. Titus 3, 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once... And then twice, you see, there is no third step here. Division in the church is something very serious and must be taken care quickly. And after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. We see that Jesus, the, the, church, the church belongs to Jesus. The church does not belong to us. We don't have the right and the authority to do what we want with the church. That belongs to Him. 
We must submit to him and do what he commands us to do. I just want to clarify because there is a difference between church discipline and excommunication. Even though excommunication is part of church discipline. Church discipline is a broader subject. Think about the word discipline. Very similar to the word disciple. What is a disciple? A student, one who follows, who is learning, following a master, following a teacher. That's a disciple, discipulus, the Latin word. And it's related to instruction, to teaching, to learning. And that's the part of church discipline. A disciple of Jesus is the one who is being constantly disciplined by the Lord to become more and more like Him. A disciple of Jesus is the one who is constantly being disciplined by the Lord. Amen? There are basically three types of church discipline. You have formative, you have corrective, and then you have preemptive. But I'm not going to spend time here. We need to move. And then there is excommunication. And some of you who come from a Roman Catholic background, you might just kind of feel weird and awkward with the word excommunication. I have heard people saying, oh, this word belongs to the Roman Catholic Church. We should never use that. No, that's a biblical doctrine. Yeah, we might not find the word excommunication in the Bible, just like we don't find the word trinity in the Bible, but it's right there. You have the prefix ex removing out of something, and then you have the word communion. The communion of the saints. Excommunication is to remove someone from the communion of the saints. Paul speaks of purging one out of the church, handing one to Satan, avoiding such people, having nothing to do with them. That's the same as excommunication. Excommunication is a, is a gracious act performed by the whole church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the will of Christ, where a person who used to enjoy the benefits of the communion of the church is now removed from the church and handed to Satan because he's not willing to repent of his sins. Bobby Jameson, he writes, Those who claim to be God's people but whose lives contradict that claim, are warned, entreated, pleaded with, and if necessary, excluded from membership in the church. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Since you're talking about excommunication, and you see here what Paul says. He says, Let him, this person who is in living with, in a immoral lifestyle, he says, let him who has done this, what? What is the church to do with that man? What? Remove him. The church is to remove him. William Baker, in his commentary, says that this word has the sense of expulsion from the group by force if necessary. The removal of a church member from the body of Christ is not something that Paul is creating. It's all over the scriptures. As, I, as, I, as if, if you go to the Old Testament, you see, and I think there is 
something very practical and applicable from what Jesus says. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with that hand? Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. And if your foot causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. And if your eyes cause you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Tear it out. Would anybody deny the application of this passage to the body of Christ? If you have a member in the body of Christ that's bringing sin to that body, what are you supposed to do? You can either use Jesus' words, cut it out, or you can use Paul's words, purge, remove. A cancerous part of your body ought to be removed. Some of you have had cancer, you know I had cancer, and do you know what? When the doctor found out that this was cancer, he didn't put a band-aid here and say, oh, it's going to be okay. Let's just put a band-aid in your cancer, and that's going to be fine. What do you do with cancer? You need to remove. The same in the life of the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, the, the one who refuses the discipline of the church must be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, he says, Christ here is talking about excommunication, total ostracism, and expulsion from the community. This likely means to treat such a person as an unbeliever, someone outside the community. Going back to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 3, Paul says that he has already passed judgment. Isn't that amazing? Paul has already passed judgment, and now he's expecting the church to do that. Oh, but I, th- I, I was taught that we should not judge others. Judge not. Right? That's, that's what everybody says. We, we, we love to remove text out of context. And it's very clear what Paul is doing here. There is a place, there is a place for judging things according to God's standards. And Paul says, And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. And then he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan. John Calvin, he says, For delivering over to Satan is an appropriate expression for denoting excommunication. For as Christ reigns in the church, so Satan reigns out of the church. And Ben said something here that's very true. He said, I felt like in hell. And I remember reading his testimony. And I read that... And I said, that's exactly what Paul says. Handing one to Satan. That experience that you are outside the gracious sphere of God. One scholar says, 
the worst punishment for an errant believer is to be removed from the wall of safety provided by the church body and thrust back into the cold, harsh world, spiritually naked, completely vulnerable to the evil rampant in Satan's realm. The point is not simply to get rid of the person, but to retain the sanctity of the church. As expressed in chapter 3, when Paul says that the church is the temple of God. And you think about, think about putting one out, as Paul is saying, handing one to Satan, removing him out of the church. And in the following verses, Paul is going to use the Passover as the basis for that. Paul is going to talk about the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread. And what happened during the Passover? What happened to the one who was not inside the house with the blood? And that's similar to a person who is removed from the house of the Lord that's covered with Christ's blood. That's what Paul is doing here. And he says, verse 11, But now, I'm writing to you, and he's contrasting here, because you can see some people in the church say, Oh, if I'm not supposed to uh, associate with one who is committing sexual immorality, a uh, greedy person, then I cannot associate with anybody. And then Paul is clarifying, he says, No, 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 I'm, uh, I'm, I'm talking primarily about the church. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat, have a meal with such a person. And here it's important for us to think that Paul is not creating an exhaustive list. That's an exemplary list. Because there are other sins that require church discipline or excommunication that Paul is not putting here. But the main emphasis here for Paul is that if a person is living a sinful lifestyle, he claims the name of Christ, the church places that person out of the church, the members of the church should not be hanging out with that person, having coffee, having a meal, pretending that everything is okay. That's what Paul is saying here. Not even eat with such one. Eating with a person was the greatest demonstration of fellowship, partnership, and communion. That's very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, to, not, to treat that person as a Gentile, a tax collector. And that means that a Jew would never sit down on the table and eat with someone, have a covenantal partnership with that person. And that applies to the Lord's Supper too. That's why we, are, we emphasize so much the priority and the importance of people being church members in good standing in a local church. So we can trust that where you are in your church, you represent Christ. Because if you don't have a church, we have no idea about your life. We cannot check on you by checking with your church. There is this aspect of the Lord's Supper, this meal that we are supposed to be celebrating with those who 
is they're faithfully bearing the name of Christ. So Paul says in verse 13, Purge the evil person from among you. Purge. See all the different words that Paul has been using for the same concept of removing someone from the church. I'd like to say that that's not the duty of elders to do that. That's the duty of the whole church. The authority has been given to the whole church, not just for elders. The church has the authority to bind on earth what is already bound in heaven. Notice how Paul used the you, you. He's not talking to the elders, to the pastors. He's talking to the church. For though absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And then he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. That's very important, brothers and sisters. The authority is not given to elders alone. That's given to the church. The whole church exercise church discipline. The whole church decides who is welcome as a member, and the whole church decides who must be removed for not acting as a member. Amen? That's why we always send an email and ask the members, what do you think? This person is aspiring membership. We are waiting for you. We are waiting for you to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. We are an elder-led congregationalism. The elders help the congregation to exercise the authority that Jesus gave. And I want to thank those members here who are always faithful in replying to those emails and voting. And it's heartbreaking to see members in this church who have the privilege, the duty of voting, exercising the authority that God has given you, and you say nothing. You have a duty as a church member to exercise your authority. Amen? Paul says, you are to deliver. You, you, you. In 2 Corinthians 2.6, Paul talks about this, the, the punishment by the majority is enough. Implying there is a majority of the church members who were in an agreement. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, he says, The excommunication is to be a community action carried out in the context of the Spirit. The whole community must carry out the action because the leaven, because the leaven has affected them as a community. Second, that's a public act. It's public. We, sometimes we, we get confused. We think that, oh, Jesus saves the individual. Therefore, Christianity is very individualistic. No, 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 no. Christ Jesus saves the individual. And what does he do with the individual? He places in the body, in the church. There is nothing as a Christian that you do that's just your problem. There is nothing that, that's my business. No. We live in a body, in a family. 
And what we do affect others. One scholar says, Paul's understanding of the church belongs to the scriptural tradition. There is the famous saying, no man is an island. All in Christ's church are bound together closely, responsible for one another, and profoundly affected by one another's actions. So if we don't take care of sin, sin will spread. And I know that you know churches where they did not take care of sin and what happened inside the church. What happened with, what, what happened with the church? A disaster. More sin happening in other areas. More shame here. Why? Because they never took care of sin and sin spreads. Sin infects. Sin affects the whole body. So that's why it's public. We have a public life as a church. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at that. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them where? Where? In a private room where nobody's looking at them? Where is the rebuke to take place? In the presence of all. If we are to rebuke publicly, we are also to forgive publicly. We show severity and mercy the way that God demands. Amen? Some people are fine with church discipline and excommunication as long as it's a private matter. As soon as it becomes public, people get embarrassed, afraid of legalities. Oh, they might sue you. Oh, yes, I have seen people suing churches because of being excommunicated. Who cares? We are obeying the Lord. We are obeying the Lord. And we do what we have to do. We have church policy. We have statement of faith. They are very clear about our handling of certain situations. So it's public. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, that there was a, the majority vote. The majority of the members vote. And they knew the majority there. In John 21, Jesus forgives and restores Peter publicly. The same way that he confronted Peter publicly and rebuked Peter publicly, he also forgives Peter publicly. So it's public. Amen? That's why we are not doing something hidden from everyone that nobody can see. Oh, excommunication just comes by a text message. Hey, we excommunicate so and so. No, it's a public act. In the same way that when we restore someone, it's a public act. The same way that when we welcome someone to membership, it's a public act. Amen? So, to finish, and quickly here we're going to finish. I'm going to move very fast. The purposes of church discipline. We saw the precedence and now the purpose. And I'm going to give you three purposes. The holiness of the church, the honor of God's name, and the hope of restoration. First of all, the holiness of the church. The church is God's family. The church is Christ's body. The church is the Lord's army. The church is God's holy temple. The members of the church must be holy as God is holy. The members of the church ought to show the power of the gospel in their lives. Amen? The church is not a mixed community. No. 
There is no remnant inside the church. In the new covenant, the members of the new covenant, they all know God. They all have the Spirit within them. They all have been forgiven. And that's why we aspire to have a church where the members are believers. Because that's the new covenant community. That's why our children are not part of the church. They're not members of the church. They must be saved. They must be regenerated. They must receive the Holy Spirit. They must have their sins forgiven to become part of the church. And people who are in the church and they're not showing a life of holiness, a life that's indwelled with the Holy Spirit, they must be treated as one. So the holiness of the church. That's why we perform church discipline. Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleans out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So, we need to remove people who are in a lifestyle of sin, unwilling to repent, otherwise the whole church will be contaminated with that. So many cases I know of pastors, leaders, who had sins in their lives, they were never treated, ever always putting under the rug. And they suddenly start finding out sin here, sin there, sin over there. Why? Because you're never treated. Never taken care of. And then sin spreads. When a church, when a church disciplines an unrepentant person who professes to be a Christian, the church is following after God's own heart. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. That's holy love. Amen? Holy love inside the church. The author of Hebrews says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. A harvest, a harvest. That's a beautiful picture. A church that's faithful to God's standard, a church that disciplines, will grow. Look at this church here. Ben, have you been seeing new faces here? Many new faces, right? A church that is faithful to God. Just as the author says here, no discipline seems, seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Amen? Second, the honor. The honor of God's name. Why we do church discipline? Why do we do... We excommunicate people because we want to honor God's name. We bear God's name. We are baptized into God's name. The church belongs to God. God adopts us and places His name upon us. When you are baptized, you are baptized into the name of the triune God. You bear His name with you. And you better honor that name. When we pray, hallowed be your name, what are we asking? Brothers and sisters, when you pray, hallowed be your name, what are you asking? As I said before, you are not praising God. You are asking God to help you to honor the name that you carry now. So when you're having a difficult situation in your work, you say, Lord, help me to hallow your name. Help me to honor your name. 
And when we practice church discipline, when we excommunicate, that, that's exactly what we are doing. We are honoring God's name. We don't want to profane. We don't want to bear the name of God in vain. Paul says in Romans 2.24, For the name of God is blasphemed. And we don't want that happening inside the church. Craig Blomberg, he writes the following, Many will continue to view the whole notion of church discipline and certainly excommunication as repulsive and unloving. Yet such people fail to grasp God's utter repugnance to sin and His infinitely perfect standards for holiness. Further, we must avoid a cheap grace that refuses to force professing believers to face up to the destructive consequence of grossly immoral behavior. They are not only damaging themselves by allowing sin to go unchecked, by, but also destroying the church. Not surprisingly, the church has regularly grown the fastest and become the healthiest where loving but firm church discipline has been implemented. And finally, and we finish here, the hope of repentance and restoration. The hope of repentance and restoration. Why do we do church discipline? Why do we excommunicate? Another reason is the hope that that person will come back to the Lord. I just want to correct something that I heard from some of you. Some of you said the whole purpose and goal of church discipline and excommunication is the person coming back to the Lord. That's not the whole purpose. That's part of the purpose. We don't do that just because we hope that someone will come back. Because we have done that. I have been in churches where we performed excommunication. That person never came back. We do that because God commands us. We do that because honor His name. We do that because preserves the holiness of the church. And in God's grace and mercy, if He wills, a person who is disciplined and excommunicated will come back. Because that happens, as you can see. Even if we never see a sinner repenting through church discipline and excommunication, even if we never see one, we will continue practice because the Lord commands us. Amen? Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And probably the flesh here refers to the center of his carnality, the center of the sinfulness that's driving this person to live that lifestyle. Or it could be the body too, and all the emotions and affections being hammered by Satan. So Paul says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that in the hope that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So one scholar says, perhaps experiencing the world as he once knew it before coming to Christ would awaken his need to recommit and return to spiritual protection in the church. So we do that out of love, love towards the church, love towards the Lord, love towards the brother, love towards the world. We want the world to see the church as different from any other club organization. Amen? So there is this holy love that motivates us. 
And when the person repents, there must be forgiveness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5 through 11, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grief. He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. And then he says, the punishment inflicted on him, and he's not talking about the same guy. That's a different person in the church in Corinth that they excommunicated. He says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Meaning, this guy is already having godly sorrow. He's repentant. And when there is repentance, Paul says, no, no, now it's time to embrace him. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you is to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So Paul tells us that when that person repents, we are to do what? Forgive. And we forgive just like Christ forgave us. And just like Christ keeps forgiving us. And we forgive just like in the parable of the prodigal son. That when he came back repenting, the father embraced him. And said, I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. And we have experienced forgiveness. And Paul tells us and commands us to forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. So when there is true repentance, there must be true forgiveness. Amen? Jesus said, and Paul said, Paul especially, he says, do not, eat, do, do not even eat with such a one. Do not have a meal with such one. And that implies the Lord's Supper. I don't want you all with this person in my table. But you see, when that person repents and is forgiven and come back, what do we do? I believe the best way is to celebrate by having a supper, a meal. Paul had told us, do not even eat with such a person. But when that person repents, we are supposed to do an embrace and bring to the Lord's table. Because it's at the Lord's table that we are reminded of how much we were forgiven by Christ. As we hold the cup, the cup that Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. We are reminded of how much Christ forgave us and how much we ought to forgive one another. Amen. Father, we declare that we need you to humble us and bring our hearts into submission to you, Lord. Prone to wonder, but we need you to restrain our hearts and bring back to your word. We thank you for your work in this church. We want to thank you for your work in Ben's life. All glory be to you, O oh Lord. You are the one who works in hearts. We are unable, incapable of changing hearts. 
I pray for those in this church. I pray for those who are here right now that need a heart surgery. I pray their Holy Spirit will be performing that surgery. Removing the old heart and giving a new heart full of forgiveness. Full of forgiving attitude. And Lord, as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, help us to be mindful of how much we have been forgiven. And those who are forgiven much, love much. Thus, increase our love for you and our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.